so tonight I am going to, we talk about faith a lot. We've heard a lot about faith over the years. I like to talk about faith. But tonight, the thing that we don't talk about is the other side of it, and that's unbelief. So I want to break down unbelief and deal just with unbelief as an antithesis to faith. Uh, as a title, I kind of titled this Doubting Faith. Doubting faith. Very few people will ever admit that they lack faith, especially as religious folk. We pride ourselves on believing the entirety of God's word. You know, I believe the word. We chide people if they show any display and a lack of faith. But God knows and understands that we are human, but it is us who must come to grips with the fact that we're human and that we have moments, seasons of unbelief. So there's no need for us to make claims that are just not true. Saying that you believe everything and have faith in everything in the, the whole Bible and there's nothing in it that I don't believe, that's just a lie. So if we struggle with unbelief, then we should confess that fact and seek God's help to obtain faith. There are degrees, there's a quote that says, there are degrees in everything, in growth, in health, and in wealth. And then I added, why not faith? There are degrees. So the notion that once we learn of Christ, and we hear about the salvation message, we hear about the cross, that immediately we say, oh, we, everything in the Bible, I believe it. Well, you ain't even read it yet. How do you know you believe it? <laughs> what, you, what you really need to sell, because I, I believe what I just heard. <laughs> now all the other stuff, <laughs> we'll worry about when we get to it. All right, well, with that, well, let's get uh, Hebrews 11 and 6. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, you can never please God without faith, without depending on him. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely look for him. So our faith must have substance and evidence. If we back up to verse number one, we say that now faith is the what? The substance of things hoped for and what? If you don't have substance and evidence in your life, you can't claim to have faith. Now, we've been taught that faith is invisible. You can't see my faith. But the Bible says that faith is substance and faith is evidence. I don't think anybody's ever been convicted in a court without substance and evidence. The areas of our lives that lack substance and evidence are a product, therefore, of our unbelief. The places in our lives that are lacking substance and evidence is there because of unbelief. Now, let's define unbelief. The ISBE dictionary says the word represents two Greek words, apatheia, which means disobedience, and apistia, which means distrust. The two words are not only 
akin etymologically, but run into one another by mental connection, certainly where spiritual relations are concerned as between man and God. For when God has spoken in precept and yet more in promise, distrust involves, at least potentially, an element of disobedience. His supreme claim is to be trusted to command only what is right and to promise only what is true. He is infinitely sympathetic to his insight and infallibly knows where distrust comes only of the dim perceptions and the weak misgivings of our mortal nature and where, on the other hand, a moral resistance lies at the back of the non-confidence. That lack of confidence is disbelief, mistrust, unbelief, it's doubt. And the Bible says that whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. But the presence of that darker element is always to be suspected at least and searched for in serious self-examination. We have to learn to examine ourselves and find the places that are in us that have unbelief. And the best place to start is to start with those places where you lack the evidence and the substance that the Bible says should accompany your faith. We may remark that it is a loss in our language that the word unbelief is the only word that we can use as the antithesis to faith. For faith and unbelief are not really synonyms. The word unfaith, if we could use that, would actually be a better term for the word unbelief. So these are some, some other uh, words that have been substituted for the word unbelief. He or she that believeth not, infidel, unconverted, heathen, disbeliever, faithless, want of faith, and incredulity. You don't even have a capacity to believe the statement that's being made. But none of us would ever say, I'm an infidel. I'm, I'm unconverted because our whole testimony is I've been converted to Christ. We would never say, I'm a heathen. That's that, that's that group over there. That's the folk that don't believe. But when we have areas in our life where we don't believe, that just changed our status from faith to unbelief. We just become an infidel. So an unbeliever is the person who fails or refuses to respond in faith to a set of facts or spiritual truths. Sometimes unbelief refers to a response to a specific set of facts. In these cases, it is equivalent to disbelief, but more often it is used to describe a mental attitude opposed to faith and therefore inclined to reject spirituality. In these instances, the unbelief may not have any specific object. If there were such a word as unfaith, it might better express the usual meaning of apistia. And here they pick it up again. The fact that unbelief or unbeliever are common terms in the New Testament but do not occur at all in the Old Testament indicates a significant change 
with the establishment of the new covenant and the criteria by which individuals are judged to be outside of God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, the word unbelief is not in there. It's a New Testament term. It's because the Old Testament church was not judged on faith and unbelief. They were judged on, did you keep this set of rules or didn't you? So the Old Testament tends to view the failure to keep God's law or the infidelity of idolatry as typical evidence that a person has rejected God. The New Testament is more likely to describe such a person in terms of unbelief. And the last definition is from McClintock and Strong's. It's the refusing assent to testimony, the withholding of due belief. According to Kant, it is the withholding of assent to that which, though objectively insufficient as a ground of cognition and subjectively sufficient as a ground of faith. Moral unbelief is the rejection of that which, though we cannot know it, is yet morally necessary. Unbelief, it includes, says Dr. Guys, disaffection to God, disregard to his word, prejudices against the Redeemer, a readiness to give credit to any other than him, inordinate love to the world, and preferring of the applause of men to the approbation of God. Unbelief, says Charnock, is the greatest sin, as it is the foundation of all sin. It was Adam's first sin. It is a sin against the gospel, against the highest testimony, a refusal to accept Christ upon the terms of the gospel. It strikes peculiarly at God. It is the greatest reproach of him, robs him of his glory, is a contradiction to his will, and a contempt of his authority. The causes of unbelief are Satan, ignorance, pride, and sensuality. And the danger of it is great. Number one, it hardens the heart. Number two, it fills with presumption. Number three, it creates impatience. Number four, it deceives with error. And number five, it exposes the condemnation. So with that, let's get Mark 9. And let's see unbelief at work here. Then he drove it home by saying, this isn't pie in the sky, by and by. Some of you who are standing here are going to see it happen, see the kingdom of God arrive in full force in a light radiant cloud. Six days later, three of, three of them did see it. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led, up, led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes. His clothes shimmered, glistening white whiter than any bleach could make them. Elijah, along with Moses, came into view in deep conversation with Jesus. Peter interrupted, Rabbi, this is a great moment. Let's build three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He blurted this out without thinking, 
stunned as they all they all were by what they were seeing. Just then a light radiant cloud enveloped them and from deep in the cloud a voice, this is my son marked by my love, listen to him. The next minute the disciples were looking around rubbing their eyes seeing nothing but Jesus, only Jesus. Coming down the mountain, Jesus swore them to secrecy. Don't tell a soul what you saw. After the Son of Man rises from the dead, you're free to talk. They puzzled over that, wondering what on earth rising from the dead meant. Meanwhile, they were asking, why do the religion scholars say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, Elijah does come first and get everything ready for the coming of the Son of Man. They treated this Elijah like dirt much like they will treat the Son of Man, who will, according to Scripture, suffer terribly and kicked around contemptibly. There are no ifs. When they came down the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a huge crowd around them and the religion scholars cross-examining them. As soon as the people in the crowd saw Jesus, admiring excitement stirred them. They ran and greeted him. He asked, what's going on? What's all the commotion? A man out of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my mute son, made speechless by a demon to you. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and goes stiff as a board. I told your disciples, hoping they could deliver him, but they couldn't. Jesus said, what a generation. No sense of God. How many times do I have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy here. They brought him. When the demon saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a seizure, causing him to writhe on the ground and foam at the mouth. He asked the boy's father, how long has this been going on? Ever since he was a little boy. Many times it pitches him into the fire or the river to do away with him. If you can do anything, do it. Have a heart and help us. Jesus said, if. Now notice he's continuing his whole if thing that he was carrying on with the other three. He ends them with them. This is no if matter. I can do this. Okay. The son of man is going go and do everything that the Bible says the Son of Man is going to do. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He comes down, and now there's still this if factor. There are no ifs among believers. Anything can happen. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than the Father cried, then I believe, help me with my doubts. Now, how do you say, I believe, (laughs) but help my unbelief? You know, that, that that's just, that's crazy. But that's how we are. Wow. All right, so let's deal with this. In this chapter, we have two examples of unbelief. Number one, we have the nine disciples who are acting in disbelief. The father of this kid says, I brought this boy to you. Why would he say that I brought him to you when we just read that Jesus was on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration? He wasn't there. I brought him to you. But when I brought him to you, couldn't find you, the other nine stepped up to the plate. Now, what they wanted Jesus to do was, oh, well, we can do that. We can do that. 
we can cast this demon out of your boy. There's nine of us. We can link together in faith, and we can do this thing. But they were unsuccessful. Could not accomplish. Now, this is what Jesus had already given them authority to do. If we read about how he handpicked them, and he chose them one by one, and then he told them and sent them out two by two, and he gave them power to cast out. He gave them authority to do this. There's no reason why they shouldn't be doing what they're supposed to be doing. So they're unsuccessful in their spiritual endeavors, but they don't seem to attribute their failures to their unbelief. The master is the one that has to target and say, this is because of your unbelief. Wow. Now, they could have been honest and said, Lord, you know what? We just really don't buy all of this casting. This is new to us. I could understand if they said that. You know, we, I mean, just a few days ago before you stepped on the scene, we were still in the sacrificial offering system. You know, that's, that's what we did. But now you come to us with all this power stuff and the casting out demons and the raising of the dead and, this is new to me. I don't, I don't really know if I believe all this stuff yet. It's the other three. They coming down the mountain. Now, they are saying, I don't know what this guy could mean by being raised from the dead when they just saw two people come back from the dead. They just saw Moses and Elijah. Now, they, they know enough Jewish history to know that Moses is dead and Elijah is dead. But yet when Jesus says the son of man is going to die and be raised from the dead, we don't even know what, what is being raised from the dead. Now, you just witnessed this. And even before you witnessed it, I told you some of you are going to see the glory of the kingdom. Then after you see the glory of the kingdom, you say, I don't know. If, I don't know what this glory of the kingdom is. Unbelief. It's, it's very dangerous. So he targets their unbelief, and then he expresses his disappointment. And they're not garnering from the precious times that they had spent with them. Now, Jesus, he, he sets aside three and a half years. Now, most of us that, that have been anything that we enjoy over time know that three and a half years can go by so quick. He took this three and a half years to perform miracles and to train those that would then train others who would train others how to operate in the power of God's spirit. But now he gets here and said, all this time I spent with you and you ain't learned one thing. How could this be? He says, how could this be? So what is the point of claiming to be connected to the Savior when we don't have enough faith to carry out the mission that he entrusted to us? The Lord, who was the embodiment of patience, was now growing impatient with their unbelief. We must wonder where the Lord's patience stands with us today. Now, we see it expressed here. I'm running out of patience with y'all. But we have to now personalize it. Lord, where, where is your patience with me in regards to me performing in the power that you gave me? The second area of unbelief is found in the father of the child who was possessed by a demon. 
Now, upon hearing the proclamation from Jesus that all things are possible to them that believe. This man responds honestly. Now, the, the other nine didn't respond honestly. They were not honest. They were not worshiping him in spirit and in truth. They weren't honest. They just they could have came out and said, Lord, I don't believe it. But this man says, now, I believe to a certain degree, but the areas that I'm still struggling with, I need help with that. Now, one of the, the great things about uh, what, what you were in, was it Hebrews 4 earlier? Where it talks about the, the power of the word. And how it divides soul and spirit and, and, and gets down into the nooks and crannies of the intentions of the heart. And the last verse of that goes into now, knowing that we have this high priest. He said, now you have access. Use the access that you have to get to the throne of God so that you can obtain help in the time of need. So this man was accessing the faith that he had in order to get the faith that he didn't have. He was approaching the throne of God. Lord, I believe it, but help my unbelief. So we got to know who to go to in order to get the, the areas that we're lacking. in. now remember, we need we need substance and we need evidence to accompany our faith. These disciples didn't have substance nor evidence. They were going through the antics. And how many times have we seen folk going through the antics of trying to cast the demon out with no results? Because unbelief was in the midst. Because if you believed it, that demon got to go. But you got to believe that you have the power to do that. My Lord. He acknowledges and professes the faith that he has, but in his proclamation, he also owns his disbelief. We must be very careful that in our positive confessions, that we are cognizant of those things that are still lacking. Don't think that you've arrived. Oh, the Lord showed me a light on this scripture. He dealt with me here. The Lord visited me in this season of my life. That's good. And we, we praise God with you. We praise God for you. But there's still things that we need to grow. Remember, life is a process. There's a growth to this thing. To them that had the, the audacity to believe in God, to them, he gave them power to become, not to be, but to become. So none of us have the right to stop becoming what he gave us the power to become. So the difficulty in the way of healing is not want in the power of God, but want in the faith of men. The blessing given is in proportion to the degree of faith. No faith, no blessing, little faith, little blessing, great faith, great blessing. Now you have the, the one who created the universe, created the heavens, created the earth, created man from dirt. Put all these organs that work in the man. He knows how to create it and he knows how to fix it. He comes on the scene and starts healing folk. And he tells the folk that are being healed that your faith made you whole. <laughs> and he tells the other people that are not being healed, I can't work because of your unbelief. Yes, I created that kidney that has cancer. But I can't do anything with it because you don't believe I can. 
Let's move to Romans 11. Let's start. Let's look at verse number 13. As you know, God has appointed me as a special messenger to you Gentiles. I lay great stress on this and remind the Jews about it as often as I can, so that if possible, I can make them want what you Gentiles have and in that way save some of them. And how wonderful it will be when they come when they become Christians. When God turned away from them, it meant that he turned to the rest of the world to offer his salvation. And now it is even more wonderful when the Jews come to Christ, it will be like dead people coming back to life. And since Abraham and the prophets are God's people, their children will be too. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches of Abraham's tree, some of the Jews, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from, we might say, a wild olive tree, were grafted in. So now you too receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of his own special olive tree. But you must be careful not to brag about being put in to replace the branches that were broken off. Remember that you were important only because you are now a part of God's tree. You were just a branch, not a root. Well, you may be saying those branches were broken off to make room for us, so I must be pretty good. Sometimes we think that, well, you know, God saved me. You know, I must, I must be all that in a bag of chips. Watch out. Remember that those branches, the Jews, were broken off because they didn't believe God. And you are only there only because you do. Do not be proud. Be humble and grateful and careful. For if God did not spare the branches he put there in the first place, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. <laughs> Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is very hard on those who disobey, but very good to you if you continue to love and trust him. But if you don't, you too will be cut off. On the other hand, if, you, if the Jews leave their unbelief behind them and come back to God, God will graft them back into the tree again because he has the power to do it. So we must embrace and cherish our faith. It is the very thing that qualifies us to receive the blessings and promises that God has sent forth. When we don't have faith, that opens the door for someone else to receive what we don't have the faith to receive. That's the lesson that we should learn from the Jews. God sent the blessing to them, but they didn't have the faith to receive the blessing. Therefore, God's word, God sent out a word of salvation. If you reject it, that word don't stop because you rejected it. The word moves on to somebody else. So we hear the saying, what God has for me is for me. We sing the song, what God has for me is for me. But this only rings true if you have the faith to receive it. Because God designed for the Jews to be his people. What he had for them is not theirs. Not right now. Because they didn't have the faith to receive it. Paul gives an important warning for the Gentiles not to get puffed up because they've been grafted in. Anyone who has missed the mark because of unbelief can just as easily become the recipients of his blessings and promises by simply ditching their unbelief and embracing faith.
Hebrews 3. You who are chosen for heaven, I want you to think now about this Jesus who is God's messenger and the high priest of our faith. For Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him high priest, just as Moses also faithfully served in God's house. But Jesus is far more glory than Moses, just as man, a man who builds a fine house gets more praise than his house does. And many people can build houses, but only God made everything. Well, Moses did a fine job working in God's house, but he was only a servant. And his work was mostly to illustrate and suggest those things that would happen later on. But Christ, God's faithful son, is in complete charge of God's house. And we Christians are God's house. He lives in us. If we keep up our courage firm to the end and our joy and our trust in the Lord. There's a big if there. Now we're dealing with ifs today. If. We saying, Lord, if you can do this, then do it. He's saying, well, if you can believe, then I'll do it. So the Jews' unbelief ignited God's anger, causing him to strip them of the promise he called them for. We are warned to steer clear of unbelief to prevent the same thing from happening to us. We must maintain a faith much like the faith that we exhibited when we first came to Christ and receive salvation. Let's go to 2 Kings. Now, 2 Kings, you're going to want to read chapters 5 through 7, okay, for, for, for what we're getting ready to cover. All right, now let's deal with Naaman. The king of Syria, verse number 1, had high admiration for Naaman, the commander-in-chief of his army, for he had led his troops to many glorious victories. So he was a great hero, but he was a leper. Bands of Syrians had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a little girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. <coughs> One day the little girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman told the king what the little girl had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to carry to the king of Israel. Now, here we already see that they didn't got the signals messed up because the little girl said, go see the prophet. Right. But the king of Syria says, go see the king. Well, he didn't tell you to go see the king. He told you to go see the prophet. Now, notice the little girl got more sense than the two kings put together. These two kings are at war with one another, but yet this little girl got more sense than all of these grown folk that have authority and call the shots for entire nations. Go and visit the prophet, the king told him. I will send you with a letter of introduction. So Naaman started out taking gifts of $20,000 in silver, 60000 in gold, and 10 suits of clothing. Why this man got $80,000 in gifts and 10 suits? You are a leper. The letter to the king of Israel said, the man bringing this letter is my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read it, he tore his clothes and said, this man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can kill and give life? He is only trying to get an excuse to invade us again. 
But when Elisha, the prophet, heard about the king of Israel's plight, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet of God here in Israel. So Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's home. Elisha sent a messenger to, out to tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he would be healed of every trace of his leprosy. But Naaman was angry and stalked away. Look, he said, I thought at least he would come out and talk to me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call upon the name of the Lord his God and heal me. So we come to God and say that this is what I want done, but this is how it has to be done. I've got to get in the prayer line and I've got you've got you got to get the oil. It won't work without the oil. You got to get the oil. And then you got to do this whole elaborate prayer. And when you touch me, you got to shake your hand. You got to quiver when you do it. And you got to raise your voice and get preaching with And Lord God, touch this. And hey, touch him. And you got to utter a few tongues in the prayer. Otherwise, it wasn't anointed. Because if you don't do it this way, it, it won't work. You just can't say. In the name of Jesus, be healed. We were casting this devil out of a man once. And this, this particular, some of you may have heard this testimony. I went to work that day, and I didn't want to go to work, but I didn't have a reason not to go. So I went to work, and God kind of rebuked me. He said, get up now and go to church. I had to tell my supervisor, this is Bank of America. I got to tell my supervisor, I have to go. Well, was, are you sick? No, I'm not sick. I have to go. I couldn't sit there and explain the Holy Ghost is wounding me. He's trying to give. And the minute I, I, so I go, they write me up, they write me up. I had to obey the Holy Ghost. The minute I walk into the side door of the church, the church is full of people, but my eyes go straight to this one man who had positioned himself on the front row, who was full of demons. Now, we go and start to work with this, this man after service. And at one point, the demon talks out and says, you have to lay your hand on me. And I said, don't tell me how this thing works. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to lay my hand on. It's the same spirit that named me. I'll expect that you would at least come and wave your hand. I said, you're going to hush your mouth. And you come out in the name of Jesus. That's, that was it. There's no need. Because he knows that if somebody touches me that ain't got faith, he wasn't worried about me. I, I, I wasn't worried about touching him. I could have touched him. wouldn't have fazed me. But there were others. Because at one point we said, if you are if you wavering in faith right now, you need to get out of this church. And you should have saw the saints start running. They start picking up their bike. Well, time to go. I said, now, now this is what God has anointed us to do in the earth. What is, what is with all this unbelief? You are an infidel. The sanctuary was full of infidels. At least they were honest. At least they weren't like these nine who didn't believe. 
So sometimes our unbelief is evident not in what God can do, but how he can choose to do it. Some of our unbelief ain't in, Lord, I know you could do it, but our unbelief sometimes stands in, I don't agree with the way you're doing this. Remember now, unbelief can come in a lot of different areas. You can fool yourself into believing, I believe God. But the Bible says with the children of Israel that when he says that their hearts melted like water, he said they were, they, it was because of the way. Their hearts melted like fear because of the way that God was doing what he was doing through them. It wasn't that God wants to take us to the promised land, but God, you want to take me through the wilderness to the promised land. Naaman had enough faith to seek healing, but not enough faith to receive it because he had a problem with the way that it was going to be done. Some of our anger, rage, and frustration are a direct result of our unbelief in God's choice of blessing us. Take God out of that little box that you placed him in. Get him out of there. Chapter number seven, verses one and two. It says, Elijah replied, the Lord says that by this time tomorrow, two gallons of flour for four gallons of barley grain will be sold in the marketplace of Samaria for a dollar. The officer assisting the king said that couldn't happen if the Lord made windows in the sky. But Elijah replied, you will see it happen but you won't be able to buy any of it. Now, what happened in chapter six is God sent a famine in, in the land of Samaria. The king of Israel found out that the reason for the famine was because of Elijah. Now, because of this famine, people were eating donkey brains. And the price of donkey brains was $50 per serving. Not only were they eating donkey brains, but they were eating dove's dung. The waste. That was being sold at $3 per pint. Bird poop. $50 per serving for donkey brains. The famine got so bad that two women conspired to kill and eat their own children. Today, we're going to kill your son. We're going to kill JT today and eat him. Tomorrow, we'll kill Zoe and eat her. Now, the first day, we killed JT, but I renege on my promise. I go and hide Zoe. So now this famine has caused great strife. They come to the king, and the king says, they, these women, I killed my kid and ate him. And share my kid with this woman, but she won't do the same with me. I'm spending $50 for donkey brains, $3 for a pint of, of, of dove poop, and I'm killing my own kids and eating them. There's got to be something wrong here. So the king says, the cause of this famine is Elijah. So let's kill Elijah. So in chapter 7, we see the servant of Elijah come. But God, like God warned Elijah that the Syrians were coming, God also 
tells him, even your king wants your life. As they're sitting in Elijah's house, Elijah says, the king is coming to kill me. Don't let him in the door. So this is where we pick up verse number one of seven. So when they get there, Elijah tells the king's servant, this time tomorrow, you'll be able to buy two gallons of flour and four gallons of barley grain for a dollar. You could get real food for a dollar. You've been eating junk and killing your kids. Now, I'm telling you now, by the word of the Lord, that this is what's going to happen. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Now, what if somebody said, you ain't got no money today. You didn't lost your job. But tomorrow, you're going to be a millionaire. That's what he said. Verse number two, he said that couldn't happen even if the Lord made windows in the sky. The prophet responds, at first when I told you, you were going to be able to partake of it. Now because of your unbelief, it's still going to happen, but you can't take no part in it. Now the next day he had to feel awful bad. My Lord, that, that's a tough story right there. But because of his unbelief and his sarcasm, the Lord would have to open the windows of heaven for that to happen. We do that all the time. We do stuff like, we tell God that all the time. Lord, ain't no way for this to happen or that to happen. And he told the man, the, the, the boy's father, Anything is possible if you only believe. Not only the casting out of this devil, but so many other things. And he tells the nine, if you would just look at this mountain and tell it to move, it would move if you believed it. We need to become like the boy's father and say, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. According to Romans 4 and 20, we can't claim to be giving God the glory when we operate in unbelief. Matthew 13. Verse number 57. And they became angry with him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own country and among his own own people. And so he did only a few great miracles there because of their unbelief. God is saying, I am more accepted in the heathen than in my church. See, we only like to talk about the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament folk, that he was talking to them. (laughs) But he's setting up his kingdom here and telling you that I, I have more ability to work with the unbeliever, which is why I now understand that when Jesus came, he came and sat with the publicans and the right, sinners right, right. and told them only the sick have need of physician. You guys are claiming that you're so whole and healed. I got all I need, Lord. I'm, I'm cool. I'm good. I'm good. No, no, no. You, you, you know, they're the poor people over there. They're the ones that don't have faith. And then they chided him, why are you sitting over there with those people? Well, y'all don't give the prophet any honor, so I'd rather sit over here with the people of little faith. At least they got a little faith. Mark 6, 
We're going to run through these. Mark 6 and 4. God is confused. God is confused. I know that statement don't make sense. Verse number 4, Mark 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Jesus, just as unbelief caused Jesus to marvel, so does great faith. Now, it's how do you make God marvel? We're supposed to be marveling at him. But he in turn said, wow, you really don't believe me. Wow. You stomped the Lord. He's like really confused here. Like, okay, now this don't make sense. Now he's disappointed. He's marveling. He's beside himself, really. The one thing that can, can cause God to unravel, so to speak, is our unbelief. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. How could, how could I do that? This almost make you want to not even say I have faith. I'm just going, shh. Because you're about to open up your mouth to a great blasphemy by even claiming to have faith. Because now the faith is the substance of things. Now faith. Faith used to be I could do A, B, and C, D and get saved and be saved. The Old Testament church. But now Faith is the substance of things. If you don't have substance, you ain't got faith. If you don't have evidence, you, you ain't got faith. Just as unbelief caused Jesus to marvel, so does great faith. In Matthew 8 and 9, he says, for I am a man. He's talking about the, the, uh, the, uh, your, the centurion soldier who's had the sick son and said, uh, you know, I'm a soldier. You know, I tell my men to go here and there and they do it. He said, you don't even need to come. Now, how many of us say, Lord, you don't need to stop by? We know you're busy doing miracles over here. You don't even have to come. Just speak the word. We don't believe that. Just one word is it? No, we, no, we need a book. <laughs> Some of us need a book because we wouldn't believe the word if he spoke it. Like Peter said, be careful what you sing. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now, this is the, the marveling that you want God to do. And said to them that followed, verily I say to you. Now, he's telling them, take notes. You 12 that I handpicked, maybe I should have picked him instead of you. I have not found so great faith, not in all of Israel. So in Revelations 21, he says in verse number seven, he that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And no wonder the disciples said when he said that it's easier for, the, for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. They said, then the Lord, can anybody be saved? 
He said, with God, all things are possible. Now, he didn't say that it was impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He just said that it would be easier for that to happen than a rich man that trusted in his riches to enter the king. He didn't say impossible. That was basically saying, I can make a camel pass through the eye of a needle. And then that, that's why they said, then who can be saved? The fearful and the unbelief. Now, this is not, we, gonna, we would say, okay, that unbelieving, that just means that you didn't believe that, that, you know, Jesus was the Lord. But no, if you embrace belief, you got to embrace belief. If you're going to trust him, you got to trust him. If you believe in him, you have to believe in him. So we got to go now to the source and go to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I have a need. My need is faith. We think that we need healing. No, you need faith. Well, Lord, I need finances. No, you need faith. With faith, all things are possible. The faith is a carte blanche check written to you from the Lord himself. Whatever you ask in my name, believing, you'll receive it. So then we, we can't be like the nine. Now, isn't it amazing that when Jesus noticed the, the correlation between Jesus and Moses here. Moses went to the mountain and told Aaron, come on, go with me. Aaron said, no, I'm not going. I'm going to stay here with the people. Moses goes up sees the hinder parts of God. Not only does he get the law, but he sees the glory of God. See, getting the, the law without seeing the glory, is, it doesn't work. You can't just have the word without the glory. The, the two are attached. And the glory has to rub off on you. The glory, when Moses came back down from the mountain, he was glowing with glory. Because of what God had just given to him. When Jesus came from the mountain, the people awed when he came back, when he, they found him. Why, was, why did they awe? That glory must have still been shining on him as he descended from the mountain. Otherwise, why would they awe? They sitting here arguing with the nine. They see the Savior coming. They didn't awe just because he walked up. They are because they noticed something about him that was not normal. That wasn't the Jesus that they had saw the day before or whatever. That glory was on him. But just like Moses came down and found the children of Israel in chaotic condition, making a calf, worshiping the idol, Jesus comes down from the mountain and what? Finds his other nine disciples in a chaotic condition of unbelief. It's the same story. <laughs> Moses comes down and finds them in unbelief. Jesus comes down and finds his other nine in unbelief. After they had said, we'll do what you told us to do. So, and these are, not, these are just questions now because we got to search ourselves. Remember now, uh, according to the definition here, 
The causes of unbelief are Satan, ignorance, pride, sensuality, and the danger of it is it causes, it hardens the heart, fills with presumption, creates impatience, deceives with error, and finally exposes, exposes to condemnation. So we got to find out how do we get rid of this unbelief? Number one, we must acknowledge and confess it. Like I said before, look at the areas of your life, in your life, where you have no evidence and you have no substance. That's where you start. Acknowledge and confess your unbelief. Number two, ask the Lord to help you. And if you want more faith, then the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So find you somewhere where the Bible is being taught. You got to read it for yourself. You got to hear it taught, hear it preached. Search it out. Search out every cause for unbelief in your life and deal with them. What caused you to not believe God? Was it a person? Was it because you prayed once and your prayer wasn't answered and that caused to turn your belief into unbelief? Was it a sickness or a disease that didn't get healed, but you just had to weather the storm with it? Because the Bible says of Jesus, when he stepped on the scene, it says that he healed. I think I talked about this in the last healing message. He healed every disease and every person. Could you imagine that? That if we could come into a, into a place and in his day, when he came to town, thousands flocked. He fed 5,000. There were 3,000 here, 5,000 here, 7,000 there. Could you imagine 7,000 folks, just, well, I don't know what the percentage of sick folk were, but none of them left with disease. Not one. And he tells us, this is not impossible to happen. The Bible says these signs shall follow them that believe. But he's telling us, I I'm marveling at your unbelief. It baffles God. No faith, no blessing. Little faith, little blessing. Great faith, great blessing. 